long because my feelings are dead. <laughs> I, I feel no remorse. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hi, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing great. We've got three movies to talk about, so I'm going to skip the pleasantries and we're going to get right into it. <laughs> yeah. We have a third host with us today, a special guest, a very, very expert film aficionado and actor and... Just all-around great guy, Ian Lyons. What's up, Ian? Aw, thanks, Nat, for the intro. Uh, <laughs> not much. I, I'm here to talk about movies. So I'm excited oh about that, because that's no one else wants to talk about movies with me. <laughs> that's why we started the podcast. Ian's coming to us live from Connecticut, right? That's right, yes. Nice, nice, which is just right outside of New York City, where all three of our crime sagas that we're going to talk about today take place uh mm -hmm. we're kind of doing this crime show yeah our crime triple feature real quick back to the movies is a podcast where we look at a year in cinema history we try and analyze what made the year special why the films were made that were made what unites them what connects them our first season we are looking at the films of 1990 and yeah this episode is a crazy one because we've got three movies to talk about now up front i'm going to say we're going to be rushing through this a little bit more than usual we're not going to spend quite as much time unpacking every tiny little bit of minutiae uh looking at every plot point but it's all worth it because the films we're going to talk about are all really interesting yes and they're all united by a common theme and setting but completely different in tone and execution they're really like a crazy spectrum it's like the id the ego and the super ego that's how i was looking at these i like movies. that that's a good way of putting it so the three movies are q a State of Grace, and King of New York. Ian, had you seen any of these movies before watching them for this episode? I saw them all back in their day. I'm elderly compared to you guys, so yes. Yeah, I saw, <laughs> uh, saw Q&A at the theater, and I saw the other two when they first came to video. Do you have any particular memories about that? Any like strong connections to any of them? Okay, so Q&A, I can tell you. I remember this, the, one, the only one I saw at the theater, but I don't did not remember one thing about it. Not one, I knew the cast, I knew the director, and that's all I could remember. I, knew, I know it was well-respected. State of Grace, I remembered loving some of the slow-mo near the end. I, maybe I won't get into that yet until we get into the film. King of New York, I loved. I loved it back then. And I cannot say the same today, but we'll get into that. Oh, man, okay. Have you seen it again since you saw it back then? I, I have not seen it since the 90s, no. Okay, okay. Can you put a rough year on it when you would think you would have seen it VHS? Are we talking early 90s? Like right oh, when it would have been no, first I was, released? Oh, no, I got movies the second they came out on VHS. So I would have seen it like the week it came out. Okay, so what came out first? Q&A. Yeah. Q&A is the only spring release of the three that we're looking at. One of the ideas of the podcast is that we look at the movies roughly in release order, uh, and Q&A came out April 27th. Okay. I remember that was first because of where I lived at the time, and then I moved to New Hampshire for the other two. Is that why you didn't see them in theaters? Because they didn't release where you were? Yeah, New Hampshire, yeah. You wouldn't have seen King of New King York. King of New York. Up there. I know that page. It didn't yeah. open anywhere. <laughs> that was big on VHS alone. So then let's start with Q&A. Initial reactions. Ian, you said you loved this movie, but you didn't remember it very well. Rewatching it now, how did you feel about it? Actually, I can't say I did love it. Thinking about it, when you guys mentioned that we were going to do this, I know I had seen it at the theater. I remember what theater I saw it at. 
but I can't say I loved it. I had no recollection of it, but I didn't think I had a, I didn't have a poor impression of it, but watching it now, I would say of the three, it holds up the best, though it has some horribly dated music in it and other things, but I'm sure we'll get We're into We're definitely going to talk about that music because that music oh, is baffling. Yeah. But I would say it's the most complex of the three films, maybe the smartest and maybe the most interesting to watch in my old age. Nat, how about you? Yeah, this was the super ego of the three movies. It was smart, maybe a little too smart for its own good. Like there was a lot of insider stuff going on. I know Sidney Lumet was like a super prolific crime, specifically like NYPD kind of filmmaker. And I I felt that there was a Mm -hmm. lot of authenticity to a lot of stuff going on in this movie, but it kind of ran out of steam halfway through. It wasn't that fun to watch after a while, which is a lot of the reason I go to watch these kind of crime movies. I mean, if I want smart crime drama in this day and age, I'm probably going to go to like those super long TV shows that can really delve Mm -hmm. deep into that kind of stuff. And this movie just didn't have like the sexiness that the other two have. It was a little bit stuffier. It's a very unsexy movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably why I remembered nothing of it at the time, and it wasn't on my list of movies I loved because it didn't have the shooting, it didn't have the the stylized violence. It was just a straightforward drama about politics and police work without the violence, which is what I would have wanted at that time. And I don't want to speak poorly of, of crime movies that don't have the gigantic set piece kills and stuff like that. One of my favorite crime movies is Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a very like understated 70s crime movie that's about these low-level gangsters and like it's just kind of pathetic and it's sad but it also has a certain style and a certain mood that this one just didn't really have it was a little bland for me mood's a good word because mm-hmm. it's something that this movie is sort of lacking i i quite liked q a i think it's a pretty solid movie i've always been a big lumet fan there are three primary creative decisions in this film that are so disastrous, they almost undid the movie for me. (laughs) I think I know. (laughs) The first one we've already mentioned is the repeated needle drop of the song The Hit by Reuben Blades. Reuben Blades should have stayed to acting. (laughs) Holy moly. I know it's going to say that. Reuben Blades, we're going to see him later this year in at least two, maybe three movies that we're covering. I didn't hate the song. It was kind of fun in a cheesy 80s way, but it is so out of place (laughs) in this movie. And they use it at the worst times. They use it during like the climax of the movie. At the best dramatic moments, they would come on and be like, why? No, this is like, oh, no. It, it, was it was horrible. Baffling. It was so, I couldn't understand. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't either. Oh. Number two, and this might be controversial. We can talk about this more. I think Jenny Lumet is really bad in this movie. I agree. The choice to cast her was a huge mistake. And oh, that one scene they had in the apartment when... It was like the first time they got together when he went to go meet with her when he realized she was with the with the bad guy. And we get the whole history of her and of that their relationship. dialogue she had was so bad. What'd she say? I even wrote it down. Uh, when she explains how she dropped him because she saw a look on his face when he found out her dad was black. Yes. And aborted their child. She said those Irish eyes are not smiling. Oh, it's like oh god. Well, and it's like, also that dialogue was the worst. It was really upsetting because I thought Robin Wright in State of Grace was basically playing a very similar role, mainly sure. being yes. the one woman the in, a, in an entire movie full of men. And she did it so much mm-hmm. better. Um, so I had a crush on her <laughs> in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lumet's dialogue has always been difficult. You know, he, he writes challenging stuff. It's hard to sell it and make it convincing. And his daughter... 
did not was do not it up well. to the challenge. Did you see though? She's a writer now. Yeah, she wrote Rachel getting married. She wrote Rachel getting married. I didn't know she that. Did. Yeah, she does one of the Star Treks now. Oh, that scene is just. We'll we'll talk about it when we get to it in the plot. But that that scene is. The movie is really, like, it's starting to pick up steam, you're getting into it, and then that scene is a brick wall that you have to run through to get to the rest of the movie. You mean that that apartment scene? The apartment scene. Can we, uh, can I ask, does Lumet usually write his own movies? Should we, like, explain Lumet at all? I think we'll get into Lumet a little bit more. Hugely prolific director. Directed a ton of amazing films. Mm-hmm. It's almost not even worth listing off. I would expect... You know, but I Dog Day Afternoon, you have to say it. <laughs> Come on. I, that was the one I was like, do I have to say it? You have to. Men. <laughs> the yeah. guest will say it. We'll talk more about Lumet when we get into the review portion. I just want to mention quickly the third creative decision that almost wrecked the movie for me, which is the epilogue. Oh, God, on the beach. The movie finally wrestles me back on board, but it has this really strong ending where it turns out there's nothing you can do and everything is shit. And then you get this weird epilogue where... We get voiceover, which we haven't had the entire movie, where Timothy Hutton's character goes to find Nancy and they get the chance to possibly spend the rest of their life together. And to me, it was like if at the end of Chinatown, Evelyn and Jake had a chance at Happily Ever After. Like you just destroy the entire mood yeah. that you create at the end of your movie by doing that. I bet the studio probably made them do that. They're probably like, it we, we got to do very studio. We need a happy ending here. So give them something. Why was she even in the movie at all? What was the point of her character? There was no point for that character to be in the movie. She had added nothing. It was weird that she's she went from dating... Dating Timothy Hutton to Armand Asante. She went from dating the Irish young cop to dating the, the, the Cuban or the Puerto Rican crime lord. That's insane. What is her type? That's two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you know... They're, those two characters, Timothy Hutton and Armand Asante, very similar yeah, what? <laughs> okay, let's speed round through this plot really quickly. Hash out the details. If there's a scene that comes up you guys want to talk about, then let's pause and talk about it. But otherwise, we'll just give the broad strokes. We start off with who I thought was going to be the main character of the movie and was not. Nick Nolte playing Lieutenant Brennan, uh, a dirty cop in the NYPD. And the first thing we see him do is lure a guy out of a nightclub and shoot him dead. Mm-hmm. Strong open. Strong open. Yeah. yeah. Even the very opening shot where you're up above the traffic light and they walk sort of in the top of the frame. That felt very Lumet to me. Like right off the bat, I'm like, oh, this is so unlike the way most directors would film this. Very observational, very held back. Yeah. Very trusting of the audience to understand what's happening. I was really intrigued by that. Nick Nolte's performance was one of the better in all three of the movies. I think it might have been the best performance yeah. in all three. At that time, he was one of my favorite actors. I was so excited to see him in this, though I didn't remember him in it, but I, he, he was so good at the time, doing a lot of great stuff. He's great in this film. I, I've always really liked Nick Nolte, even though I came to him later during sort of his crazy man phase. Uh-huh, affliction. He just has <laughs> a texture to him that you don't see in other actors, mm-hmm. and this movie is weaponizing that. He really yes. sunk into this role. It was. I don't think for a second I was like, oh, there's Nick Nolte. Like He really melted right into it. It was amazing. Can yeah. I point out something about Nick Nolte? Yes. He is still two years away from winning People's Sexiest Man Alive. Wow. This huh. Nick Nolte from this movie. He wins in 92. Really? This man. <laughs> oh! That's because he did that big romance movie with Barbara Streisand like two years later. The Prince of Tides. And doesn't he have uh, uh, yeah, Prince of Tides and uh, he's got Lorenzo's Oil coming up? Oh, that didn't do that well, but I love that. I love that too. He was yeah. great. And Weeds, which he did a few years earlier. Can we picture any major movie star 
like on because he was he was like a major movie star at this point. Yes. Definitely. Definitely huge. Yes. Can we picture any yes. major movie star like doing this role where he's like choking out transvestite prostitutes? I can't see. Yeah, I no. can't see Brad Pitt doing it. I can't see even like Leonardo DiCaprio doing it. Like I don't know. I just I think that it was a different time. Wasn't this? It was the same year he did another Forty Eight Hours, right? The sequel yep. to Forty Eight Hours. Yes. Yeah. Because we will be talking about that movie. Because <laughs> I think he's probably cleansing his soul from that. Like, okay, I'll take this paycheck, but I got to do something to not be that. <laughs> I got the chance to work with Lumet. I got the chance to push myself. And yeah, yeah, he's great in this movie. He is. He's terrifying. He's really scary. Even when the movie is working against that by playing that stupid corny song over his most terrifying actions, he's still scary. He was the MVP of the movie by far. How about that scene? I know I'm jumping ahead, but when he's, they're all getting on the airplane and there he is behind the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they'll never see him get on the plane. (laughs) I was wondering about that. I was like, wait a second. That's a really bad idea. That was so goofy, but. (laughs) So after our initial assassination, we get introduced to our actual main character of the movie, Deputy District Attorney Riley, played by Timothy Hutton, babyface in this. Timothy Hutton's a guy I have no history with whatsoever. Like, oh. absolutely nothing. Maybe I've seen him. You never saw Taps? Never saw Taps. I don't I don't know him <gasps> at all. So this was fresh for me. I was like, who is this guy? Who is this clown? He's good. He's good. He was pretty good in this in movie. In his earlier yeah. days. I don't know, yeah. but like, what's his, what's his background? Where's he from? He, I feel like he's one of those actors that hasn't, achieved the silver fox era like in 2020 like he's kind of just disappeared he's a tv guy now. okay yeah he's all tv but he started didn't he did he win an academy award for ordinary people when robert redford's ordinary people when he did that in like 1979 or 80 he started huge okay so this was i think q a was maybe one of his more his first like real adult projects though he was maybe 30 at the time he's one of those guys now on tv where him being in the show lends it some prestige because he definitely did have a film career. My only film experience with, with him was uh, a pretty bad Stephen King adaptation. The Dark, of the half. dark half. Oh, that was yeah. bad. Yeah. And that was the 90s. He did not do very well. No, that was that. So I know him from that and from like bad cop shows. So I was really surprised with him in this movie. He was quite good. You guys have to see Taps and Ordinary People and Beautiful Girls. You ever see Beautiful Girls? All right, what, in the 90s? what year are all three? Those are seasons two, three, and four back to the movies. I'll do a Hutton Film Festival. <laughs> you should. He's good. Hutton Appreciation Month. Uh, you guys all like him in this movie? I thought he was solid. Because he gets some of that that tough Lumet dialogue, and, and I think he makes it sing better than most yeah. do. Yeah. It's it's a hard role. It's a hard role to be the young guy, the young, hot guy who has to deal with all these criminals, and I think he does a pretty good job. He's got a real uh, like soulful, sad face. Mm-hmm. So he's good in those scenes when he has to... Uh, to play, you know, either the betrayal that he's facing or the memory of the pain that he suffered. He is not good in the scene where he smashes the room. That's always a hard thing to do. Yeah, that was goofy. I agree. No one's ever going to top Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. So he's brought in to handle the the shooting and present it to the grand jury and get Lieutenant Brandon through it without a stain on his reputation because he's one of the last good cops, supposedly by Patrick O'Neill playing the head of the Homicide Bureau in the district attorney's office, uh, a man named Quinn, Kevin Quinn. Yeah. We get to meet some other detectives. There's Chappie and Valentine. Uh, Chappie's played by Charles S. Dutton, who I love in Alien 3. Oh, yeah. The movie I think is perennially underrated, and he's great in that, great supporting performance in that movie. And then, of course, Luis Guzman as uh, Valentine. Oh, he's great. Is this the first big Luis Guzman performance? 
Uh, I don't no? think so. I, I don't know. I didn't do my usual book report stuff because that was what I thought we would ditch right, 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 right. Uh, to save time. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, I feel know. like he's always been such a solid, reliable character actor. He's amazing. I love him in anything. He had a fair number of films in the 80s. He was in, for instance, uh, Crocodile Dundee 2. He was in Black Rain, the Michael Douglas thriller. Ridley Scott. And the Bakune is relatively early. It might have been a big breakout for him because he's he's heavily yeah, featured. He's, he's yeah, he's got a lot of stuff going on in this movie. So then they they have that scene. There's the great scene with Nick Nolte explaining what happened, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Such yeah. a good scene. Yeah, that is It good. all plays from a wide shot down the hallway. It's great. It's not from... Riley's perspective, which is a really bold choice. And it just, in a full shot, we see Nick Nolte telling this story. And the story. movie had me at this point. I was like, okay, okay. I see what's going on here. We have this cop. Nick Nolte is one of the most convincing cops I've ever seen in a movie. He was... Sure. I know that personality. That is a cop personality through and through. Minus all the murder and rape and fucked up <laughs> shit. Like, just the way he's carrying himself is so... The good old guys, like the good old boys kind of vibe. He's, yeah. a, he's like a straight up bully in his sort of microaggressions totally. that he does to people. Microaggression is the right word. I mean, there's some overt aggression too, but in those conversation scenes, it's all micro. It's all, all subtext. Everything he's, he's controlling people in this movie specifically, with his hands. He's using his hands all the time to, like, grab people and to, like, touch them in weird ways, and it's total psychological huh. manipulation on his part that's amazing the way he captures it. And it's total jerk cop behavior. Nolte gained something like 50 pounds for the role, and the movie makes great use of his size. He's much taller than Hutton and much heavier than Hutton, mm -hmm. so whenever they're in a scene together, the movie really plays that up. He is a physical presence. Can we just mention his weird mustache cut? It's like a straight on top and then like super oh, curved yeah. on the, the cowboy. It's so, but then it's cut off. It's like the cowboy, but without the long strands. It's just <laughs> cut like at the top lip. So one of the weirdest mustaches I've ever. It's such a broad. It's like a. It's like a mustache are that you, like. Are you a mustache critic? It's like Matt? if you, you change the say... aspect ratio by mistake on a mustache. <laughs> you know, like it's 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 being, it's being stretched, stretched. Being compressed. Yeah. <laughs> very unsettling. Uh, but then, okay, so after all that, there's a little bit of investigation. We we set up that what Riley needs to do in order to get Brennan in the clear is interview the witnesses and present it to the grand right. jury. So the bulk of this first half of the movie is him interviewing the witnesses. But he's got a buddy. I don't. I wasn't sure who that guy was exactly. The old guy that he kept meeting with. Oh yeah, he was like a judge or something. A mentor. He was someone else in the district attorney's office and a different part of the yeah, office that is sort of guiding him to read between the lines a little bit and f figure mm -hmm. out what really happened. And I like that guy a lot. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Lee Richardson playing uh, Blumenfeld, his yeah. mentor. But I wanted to mention after that the scene where the movie started. I started being like, uh oh, there's some problems here was the big interview scene with the four witnesses and the lawyers. That was weird. That's interesting. I really like this scene. Talk to me about what you didn't like in it. I just think it introduced too much too fast. It introduced all these really important, powerful characters in a way that made them seem like they were just random people that happened to see the murder. I did not understand that What's-His-Face, the Puerto Rican drug lord, was a Puerto Rican drug lord. <laughs> and he's got the girl too. It was just so much information. I'm sorry, but like, it's cliche, but like, if you've got a Puerto Rican drug lord, you you got to introduce him as 
a guy that has private jets and bodyguards, not in a weird room. I'll give you that the thing the movie doesn't do very well is explain why the four of them are there together. It does pay lip service to it. And after the fact, you can kind of piece it together that the cops identify that we've got two major drug players. We've got the Italian mob. We've got this Puerto Rican gangster that were there together at the same time. And they want to bring them all in together to try and shake out other information they can use in a totally different case. It has nothing to do with Brennan at that point. And that's sort of the, the original sin of Riley in the movie is that he decides to, because he's ambitious, because he wants to make a difference in this unrelated drug case, bring these four together. And that is the thread that will then untangle his entire life. That did not play for me. I was totally lost. It felt like a scene from Clue or something. Like they all just kind of, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was kind of weird. And then he had the pouting ex-girlfriend, though we didn't know that's what was going on yet. Just kind of sitting there like, why does she look very moody? Did they just have a fight? What's going on? That defense attorney character, the Pearlstein character, is also feels borderline offensive. Oh, oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Five-ish Finkel, is that his name, that actor? <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. I, I did love the scene at McSorley's Alehouse, though, when he walked up to uh, the mentor and the mentor was like, don't talk to me that was felt like such a new york city <laughs> cop yeah you've got a defense attorney and you've got uh, someone from the district attorney's office and they hate each and other the and the, yeah exactly it was so good but the defense attorney has to be political about it and the <laughs> district attorney does not <laughs> yeah uh so then the movie's kind of a bit of a blur after that yeah so at this big interview a couple of really important things happen one we meet the rest of our major characters. We meet Armando Sante, who's playing Bobby Tex, the Puerto Rican gangster. Uh, what do you guys think of him in this movie? I, I think he's great. I, I remember at the time thinking he was good. What do you think? Oh, he chews scenery so well yeah. in this movie. His performance is totally different from the others, who are doing kind of weird naturalistic performances, mm-hmm. but slightly askew. He is just like hamming it up yeah. like a villain in a, in a TV movie. Yeah. He is so overtly sinister and he's leaning so heavily into the caricature of his role, but it's a ton of fun. But he's likable too, he's which I so thought was likeable. impressive. Yeah. You like him much more than the cops. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that's and true. even more than Hutton at times. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. He definitely had a lot of soul. I will say he had, I thought he was smarter than he turned out to be. He really screwed the pooch. Yes. In there. Yeah. Right. You kind of think, Oh, this is the badass. This is the guy that's going to get out on top of all these assholes. That should but n- no, he would have known he gets better. Owned. He gets owned he, pretty easily. Yeah, yep. he did not realize the danger he was in. Yeah. The, the Nick Nolte-shaped danger. I will say, so we introduce him. I really enjoy him. He does feel a little bit removed from the others. Mm-hmm. We also, like we said, we introduce Nancy, Jenny Lumet, who we learn shortly is Riley's ex-fiance and is now common-law married to Bobby Tex. There's a weirdly lot amount of business about the nature of their relationship that is totally irrelevant to the rest of the movie. Can we talk, why is she in the movie? There's no point of her being in there other than to give a love interest. There's like three scenes that you could cut out, and it wouldn't change anything. What, True. Hutton is going through some some regrets? Is that it? That's all that it is? Maybe to add a little more tension between Armand Asante as well and Timothy Hutton's character? But barely when he went down to me, I know is like didn't factor into anything. True, true. <laughs> Early on, it it does make their dynamic more strained and dangerous. And I feel like you could argue that the emotional vulnerability that Riley feels is part of what drives him to be so reckless in the way he pursues this case. Yeah, he has something to so. prove. Maybe I don't know. The movie doesn't really <laughs> communicate that. 
but I think you can read it there. And oftentimes with a movie like this, there's plenty of subtext that you could read in and it's not the fault of the movie that it's subtext. Yeah. Also the director's mm-hmm. daughter. And he wrote this movie. I'm yeah. Just yeah. He may wrote a role to play. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just saying <laughs> we could get more into it now because basically one of the next major scenes is Hutton Riley going to confront Nancy at her apartment about their past And the way the movie has been set up, we don't really understand the nature of their relationship. And in this one scene, we get all the information. It is a huge exposition dump. And it is almost all on Jenny Lumet to tell you this really, really melodramatic narrative of why their relationship ended. Which is kind of nonsensical. It doesn't make a lot of sense. An actor may have been able to sell it. I don't want to discount the... This movie is a a lot of this movie is about racism, but it's about inherent racism, about prejudices you're not even aware of, about casual racism. And this relationship Mm -hmm. is part of that. That Riley doesn't recognize what he did could have hurt her is part of that. But when she is telling it to us and we don't get to see it firsthand, it sounds absurd that he had one second where he saw that her dad was black and reacted with surprise. And that was enough to end a years long relationship with a child in the mix. And it was a look in his eyes. It wasn't even like a huge reaction. And they never, they never talked about it afterwards. They never had a debrief. She just ran away and they never saw each other again. (laughs) I don't know, man. I think there are actors who could sell the scene. Not very many, but I think there are some. It was the only scene where I thought the dialogue, where the dialogue stuck out to me is clunky, and I don't think that was her fault. So I think, like you said, I think they just tried to shoehorn way too much in there, and it was unfortunately on someone that was not super experienced to try to get that out. Yeah. But it's something that Lumet has done before and done successfully. I'm thinking about the Lee J. Cobb speech at the end of 12 Angry Men. Love that. Where his character has been... I've never seen it. An, oh. oh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you guys are older than me. You, I, I'm too young. Lee J. Cobb plays the primary antagonist of that film. He spends the entire movie being a huge dick, just a major asshole. And then at the end, we get this speech about how, how fractious his relationship with his son is. And we understand that the reason that he has been so insistent on punishing this young man whose trial he is a juror for is because of the relationship he has with his son. And it's very similar to this. But even in that, he gets he gets to set it up earlier. Like, they're giving her even the, the entire thing in one two-minute speech. Like, But this is something that Lumet does. Lumet is one of the few directors who is almost like, he's, he's the master of tell, don't show. Right. He loves the monologue where characters talk about things in their lives and that reveals facets of them rather than them taking actions. Mm. I think he recognizes that the things that we say and how we say them are as much an active choice as the things that we do. Mm-hmm. And he can sometimes really make that work. This is not one of those scenes though. Yeah. Yeah. It stuck out to all of us. <laughs> so what, how else do you summarize this movie? I feel like it's just a series of conversations between gangsters and cops. The, the, the other major plot point we should talk about is the search for Roger. So basically the investigation stalls, And it all starts to come down to who will be the first to find a stool pigeon named Roger, the person who lured the victim out of the nightclub for Brandon to kill in the first scene, uh, who is part of Bobby Tex's old gang, who has connections to everybody. And if Bobby Tex or if Riley find him first, 
then they'll have a case against Brennan. If Brennan finds him first, he's going to kill him. So it's all tied up in who can be the first to find the pigeon. And that's a long part of the movie. I want to mention Roger because played by Paul Calderon, who I think is fine in this movie, but will come back in King of New York. And he was bad in King of New York. What? Oh, man. <laughs> what? I oh, thought he was like my favorite part of King of New York. I love him so much in King of New York. I was thinking how bad he was when I watched that. And then when I saw this, I'm like, okay, he was a good actor. I had forgotten. Ooh. That's so crazy. Oh, no, are we fighting? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got, we should save for the King of New York thing. But I was going to say, for in this movie, I watched King of New York before this one. And Same here. He was one of the standout characters in that movie for me. And in this movie, I thought I he agree. was fine. But he is, <laughs> he is scarred with one of the movie's great sins which is a very primitive understanding of homosexuality versus transsexuality and conflating the two. Mm. It's something that the movie just routinely gets wrong. It was a different time. It was a, yeah. Yes. Can I just put out like, uh, sorry to completely change the subject, but did this movie need a five minute club scene at the beginning with all these characters? So we knew what they actually had to do with any of this. Cause I'm sorry. It's just, I didn't track a lot of it. Like it's, it was, it was hard to keep track of all these characters and who the hell they are without seeing them in their natural element, which I feel like is a sin of the movie a little bit. Like, who are we talking about here? We're talking about crime lords. Oh, we're not just talking about some asshole that got shot in the head. We're talking about some serious yeah. people. And even the fact that he had led the guy, it, I just, I didn't even get that. Maybe it's my fault. I think it came out eventually, and I think especially, again, I don't mean to go into King of New York yet, but after watching how simple that was and having something a little more complex that I didn't know everything that was going on, I was like, ah, right. good, my brain's working a little harder <laughs> yeah, this time. <laughs> so I'm okay with it. you know what the it. ultimate example is of that for me in this film? It's basically the next plot point we're going to hit. Bobby finds Roger, takes him down to Puerto Rico, and Riley goes down to meet with him so he can get Roger to be a witness in his case against mm-hmm. Brennan. And while he's down there, we get the big reveal. We, we finally learn why Brennan has been hunting all these people, why he committed the murder in the beginning of the movie. And the explanation is really hard to follow because it doesn't really match the characters we've seen. It turns out when Bobby Tex was a young man fresh off the boat from Puerto Rico with his gang of Puerto Ricans, he used to run with a slightly older boy who went by the name of Slim, who is Kevin Quinn, the ancient district attorney from the homicide office. I didn't catch that. Was he 40 years what? old when he was running yeah. with him? I looked this up. He is 30 years older wow. than oh Armando Sante. It doesn't make any sense. Wow. It's insane. This explanation, something went wrong in the casting. This should not be the explanation. But Quinn gets dirt on Brennan and uses Brennan as his personal assassin to clean up all of the members of this old gang he used to run with so that he can then pursue a political career as the attorney general. That's actually one thing about this movie that stuck out to me, not necessarily that plot point, but as far as like casting older people, there's a lot of older people in this. I wonder if they're just old friends of Sydney, uh, why can't I say Sydney Lumet? I always said Lumet when I was younger, so now I can't undo it. I will say this, I, I like seeing old people in these kind of crime movies just because I feel like they feel more like- Experienced. Experienced and like they could actually be involved in this kind of, like I hate watching yeah. like, like, uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched that TV show Power, but it's all these like models basically. I've auditioned are... for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, you're not a criminal. You're a model. Yeah. You're an underwear model. What are you doing? Well, that's kind of like, for, well, for me, like when I saw this movie Q&A, I was maybe 
I don't know, I was like 17 or something. And now watching it and I'm here like 17 years older than Timothy Hutton's character. I'm like, he's too young for that role. <laughs> so I guess it's all where you are in your own life that you project Regardless that Regardless of where you're at your life, Patrick O'Neill is too old to be playing somebody who was in a childhood gang with Armand Sante. True. Unless he had that aging illness. What is that? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some kind of degenerative disease. He's, he drank from the wrong. He drank from the wrong goblet. He has Benjamin yeah. Button syndrome. He's actually that's what it is. Twenty five years old. The wrong Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah, that and it's also all done through dialogue, and it's not all even done through dialogue. not even dialogue between the characters that we're talking about. So like, I don't know. I actually missed it. It's not engaging. We never learn exactly what it is Queen has on Brennan, that gives him enough sway to get Brennan to fly down to Puerto Rico and murder a ton of people. Four people. I have a question. Who died in the shower? Because remember, there's a guy in the on the on the. Those on were the, the hitmen from the mafia, which was a whole other plot point. I thought someone else got killed there. Then I see who I thought got killed that was alive. I totally forgot that the mafia puts a hit out on Bobby, and, and their then... death was so goofy on the balcony. He's like, oh, oh. I I, I hate <laughs> that death, but we really need to coin a term where clearly someone wants whoever's writing this. I guess in this case, Sidney Lumet. They want to tell an epic tale of all these different gangs and all these different hitmen mm -hmm. and all these different things happening and all this corruption and all of this epic sweeping tale of criminals and cops. But <laughs> they just kind of like slide it out there. They don't put in the work of like, this is Jimmy. Jimmy's a guy who killed this guy. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's just all this information that you don't, it doesn't have any weight to it. It's just like, it's like a spew of, of criminals and cops committing crimes in the past and we're just talking about it. And it doesn't have the weight. It doesn't have the gravitas that I need from these types of movies. Is the term, eh, pick? I mean, I guess, but it's <laughs> clearly a lot of work is put into it and it's interesting, but it just doesn't come together in a way that makes you feel anything when the movie ends. But I have to say out of the three movies that we're gonna talk about, if if we had to remake one of these movies with the script that's already out there, I think this is the only one that we could redo and it would work nowadays. Yeah, you definitely have to revisit some of the the racial elements and the, the yes. sexual identity elements. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I want to talk about those when we finish up with the plot because I think they are important things to discuss, but this movie works for me. I want to say that again, since Nat, it feels like you're, you're actually kind of skewing the other way. I actually did really like this movie. I found the ending effective, mm -hmm. which is where we get to next. This is a classic, like everything's fucked up ending. Brennan goes to Puerto Rico. Yeah. He kills Roger. He kills Bobby. He goes back to New York and he confronts Riley in a police station and almost kills him too, but then gets shot dead by a new cop who was just barely introduced. And really it shouldn't have been that guy. It should have been, it should have been Dutton or Guzman. But they had some sort of history, too. Nick Nolte said something like, killed by, and said it his nickname. He's like, oh. oh. No, yeah, because he was the virgin cop. Oh, okay. Because he had never been, he never killed anyone before. Is that what that was? You okay. seem to have a much better command of the plot and reasoning behind mm. all this movie. Why did sure. he shoot Dutton? Because Dutton was trying to arrest him? What did they have yeah. on him? What info did they have on him at that point? Did they it's probably know, the racism, too. Did they know he had killed the people in Puerto Rico? Yeah, at that point, so we get the... The big climax of the movie, with the inexplicable backtracking of the terrible cheesy song, is <laughs> Brennan killing Bobby and Roger, but also Riley and his team in New York realizing that Brennan is down there and getting enough to try and put him away. Okay. 
then Brennan comes back from Puerto Rico. He's witnessed in the airport by Guzman and the new cop. So they have enough evidence, certainly, to arrest him. Right. But before they can, he goes on a rampage and gets shot dead. And we get our our conclusion, our denouement, which is Riley coming to the realization that even though Quinn was the person behind this all, this all started because of crimes that he committed when he was younger that he's now trying to cover up. He's untouchable. Yeah. He's too powerful. There isn't enough evidence. Blumenfeld says, there's nothing you can do. And if you try, it's going to be me who puts you down. I'm going to be the one who destroys your reputation. It's not going to be Quinn because the system has to be preserved. Right. Which is then really heartbreaking for Riley. And I think a really effective scene. That idea I find really powerful. I think Hutton plays it well until his complete freak out. And I think Richardson, Lee Richardson, is really good in that scene where he's like, I really didn't want to come to this, but this is what it is. My hands are tied. Mm -hmm. You went too far. And they have your mother's pension or something all tied up in this too. Right. (laughs) Yeah. He was guiding him though. What was, I don't know. I got lost. (laughs) Well, because if, if they had collected the evidence they needed, if they had Roger, if they could have turned Brennan, then they might've stood a chance. Yeah. If they had Brennan as a witness against Quinn, they could have taken Quinn down. But as it stands, they don't have anything. Just just Riley's word against Quinn's, and nobody's ever going to believe him. And that's the end. And then he sees the girl. The end. And then he meets her on a beach like it's the end of Shawshank Redemption. My wife walked in at that point. She's like, is it is bo- her bodyguards like sitting there behind her on the beach, like 40 feet away? And it's just like, what? I'm sorry. I was a little lukewarm on the whole thing. I gotta say. That's how I was when I saw it 30 years ago. So yeah. I hear you. <laughs> And, and, you know, I never would have watched it again, and I never want to see it again, but I don't mind I saw it again. (laughs) It's a two-timer. You watch it twice and you're done. Should we just go into the next movie? Do we need to, like, No, there's some more stuff I want to talk about. I want your guys' take on the way this film depicts racism. Do you think it's effective? Do you think it's heavy-handed? I think it was done pretty well. I think so, too. The cops protecting each other and, like, people kind of devaluing other people based on race and based on that kind of stuff. Yeah, but doing it casually. yeah tossing out racial slurs as a form of personal greeting. Yeah, and also as a form of power, too. Like, it's what we were talking about earlier with Nolte's microaggressions. Like, that's a way that you can control someone else by making them feel like shit. I think it was very realistic in that and and that discussion that uh, Timothy Hutton and Dutton with a D had near the end about casual racism and kind of Hutton's character kind of coming across as like the the woke guy. But he wasn't quite as woke as he thought he was. And that's kind of what Dutton was pointing out to him. And I thought that was a really nice conversation. That's a good scene. I mean, those are the kind of scenes where this movie really sings. Yeah. Where the dialogue is attacking the issue from like a perpendicular angle and the actors are really getting some stuff to chew on. And they're getting subtexts and spines to play. Mm-hmm. Those scenes are really good. Yeah. yeah, that was really nice. I agree. Let's quickly talk about this movie's box office. Because I still think that's just really interesting. It didn't do well, right? Before we get into this, let me say, we're watching three movies. Mm-hmm. One of these movies was a, a success. A moderate hit. Made enough money to be fine. Which of the three movies do you think it was? Oh, it was this one. Yeah, I think this one. Indeed. Yeah. Q&A opens April 27th on a budget of $6 million. It goes on to gross 11.2 domestic. Perfectly fine. Everybody's oh, okay. still working. No, Not the end of anybody's career. It's not a massive hit. It's not like a cultural sensation. Yeah. But if this movie had won a couple of awards, I think it would be much better remembered today because it had an audience. People saw it. Mm-hmm. And it's the only one that's going to wind up in the top 100 for the ranking game. Nat, what do you think? This, this is a game we play where we try and guess where it lands in the top 100 of the year. 65? 
That that was that was optimistic. It's ninety two. Ninety two. Okay. It just barely squeaked in there. Wow. Yeah. But it does fine. Like, like I said, everybody has a career after this movie's over. I'm the only person I know that that year that saw that movie. Of any of my friends, no one else I know saw it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we move on to movie two now? Yeah. Sure. Movie two, State of Grace. We are fast forwarding to September for our next two movies. Fall releases. All right. Big Oscar players. Let's talk about State of Grace. What are our first thoughts? Who 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 had a reaction to this movie? I had a reaction. Let's hear it. This was my speed. I think that this was the right amount of dumb, but also smart. <laughs> it was the it was the uh, the ego. It had some good performances. It had some really ridiculous shootouts. But I I also felt like it was grounded in a reality in a way. Like it was about the Westies in Hell's Kitchen, and they were clearly cribbing a lot of stories from that time period and adapting it to this time period, and I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, I'd, I'd say of the three, I might like it the best. We're going to do rankings at the end of the episode. I think cinematically, it is the most beautiful to look at. It's the kind of movie where back, when I, like going back to when I first saw it when it came to VHS, I, I was excited to see it. I remember it was another crime film. It looked really pretty, nice, good director, nice Ennio Morricone soundtrack, if I say that right. But it's way more simplistic than I remember it. I remember back then being a little bored because it you know, it was very talky, but I loved the slow motion shootout at the end. Like, I loved that. Yeah. But it's so simplistic. It's very simplistic. But I kind of like that versus something like Q&A where I can no longer follow what the hell is going on. I'm sort of like, okay, that one guy just died. And now they're mad about that guy dying. And I got it. I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm sucked in. I, that's all yeah. I need. And the actors are great in this. So many great actors. I mean, the cast is incredible. Gary Oldman, geez. Considering a lot of these actors are pretty early in their careers, this thing is a coup of casting. That oh, casting yeah. director needs a serious raise. Yeah. And, and Sean Penn is probably the least used for his talents. Sean Penn, John Turturro, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris, Robin Wright. John C. Riley. John C. Riley. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. Cool cast. I did not like this movie very much. And why? <laughs> I thought it was a very handsome movie. Yes. Very well shot. Looked good. I thought it was well acted. I thought it was completely inert. Mm. I thought it was a slog. I was bored from pretty much the very beginning of the film. You are 1990 me. That's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> what I think I came to with these three films, and we can talk about this more at the end, is that with such similar genres, settings, tropes, plot elements, the things that really distinguished the films were the things that made me like them. So that's the hyper-intellectual, wordy script of Q&A, mm -hmm. and it's the surreal visual style of King of New York, and this movie was just too straight down the middle. Mm. Didn't have enough going on. Totally. Of these three movies, absolutely. And I guess Goodfellas came out the same year? Right. Yeah. So it's like, mm. This movie particularly up against Goodfellas, is a pale, pale reflection. It has no energy. It has no life. It has no humor. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But Robin Wright was very pretty at the time. She was very pretty. <laughs> she still is. Yes, true, true. They, this was the hammiest movie. You think it's hammier than King of New York? What? I kind of do. I kind of do. Because <laughs> King of New York is basically just like a music video. Like, it's just all style. In this, they're like actually trying to pretend to be like real... People? They thought it was a smart. They thought it was a smart movie at the time. State of Grace. Yeah, I liked what you said, Nat, about it being dumb and smart because it's a movie that's smart but not nearly as smart as it thinks it is. It was sort of like comfort food to me. I was like, 
oh wow, look at all these actors acting. Like, oh, Gary Altman's tour de force performance. And like, from the perspective of now, I kind of enjoyed watching it for that, where I was like, this is so freaking corny and like so mm-hmm. over the top. They're taking this so seriously, but it was sort of like delicious comfort food in a yeah, way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and that heavy-handed score, I kind of loved it. But yeah. nowadays, I'd be like, what is going on here? It was like yummy nostalgic candy. It, it felt, <laughs> yeah, just yummy, yummy ham acting. This might be sacrilege as a film buff. I did not like the score. I thought the score oh, was I like the score. a was, really bad match too. for the performances and the visual style of the film. There is a version of this movie where that score works, and that movie is called Once Upon a Time in America, and that is not this movie. Oh, I didn't like that. Or maybe Untouchables, something that's heightened. Okay, I love that. (laughs) Theatrical and operatic, but this movie is gritty and realistic and naturalistic, and the score is all saxophones and And deep, throbbing emotions. It works for the slow-mo shootout, though. It, yeah, slow motion. It worked cool. okay in the slow motion. I'll give you that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of liked it. It's just because it was a little different. Like, what else were you going to have? Just like rock music or just orchestra? I don't know. Yeah, just I was... something a little bit more classically orchestral, I think, would yeah. have been fine. Something that kind of just got out of the way. Yeah, I think nowadays they would not have used music in many of those moments. You just like, True. it would be dialogue and it wouldn't be like pushed. It's like, feel this way. It's like telling you how to feel the whole time. But it's better than the Q&A score. We have to give it that. that Come on. True. Come on, Ben. That is true. <laughs> uh, listeners, just stay tuned to the end of the episode. I'm going to put like most of the hit at the end of the episode so you can listen to the song. Oh, jeez. Oh, We're not monetized. I can do Don't that. Don't double cross. <laughs> what's, the, what's the plot of uh, State of Grace? The film opens with a little bit of, little bit of trickery. We see uh, Sean Penn playing a character named Noonan, who is given a gun by John Turturro. And then goes to a drug deal where Totoro's there and shoots him with that gun. And you're like, whoa, wait. What, Totoro's dead in the first five minutes? Yeah. Immediately, the movie is not as smart as it thinks it is because the only explanation is that he is an undercover cop. There's Uh literally nothing else that makes sense given those two scenes back to back. And the movie wants to save that revelation for about 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. He could be like just a gangster that has done a deal with another gangster. You never, you don't know that he's a cop. That's actually what I thought because I didn't remember. It yeah, that's at what all. I thought. I was like, "Oh, he's into some. He's into some double crossing with another gangster." How does that make any sense? But when he sees him at the funeral later on, I'm like, "Is he like feeling guilty for killing a guy that was maybe an undercover cop?" So he's remembering, like, kind of visualizing Totoro at the funeral. But then it was real, so I'm like, "Oh, he's a cop." <laughs> maybe I was being too too smarmy. But I right away. I mean that that first scene was. Fine, I kind of liked him on the bridge. I, I always love it when a character says the same thing over and over again, but it reveals more about the character each time he says it. And that's what happens. Like, Totoro's like, are you good? And and Penn's like, I'm fine. And they say it, like, multiple times, but every time you're like, no, Penn is not fine. He is mm-hmm. very far from fine. <laughs> After we get this scene, Noonan goes into a bar and he meets with his old friend, Jackie, played by Gary Oldman. And we learn that Jackie is part of a gang led by his brother, Frank, played by Ed Harris, that kind of runs Hell's Kitchen at this point. Irish gang running Mm -hmm. Hell's Kitchen. And Noonan starts to work his way into the gang. We also meet Kate, Robin Wright, who is Jackie and Frank's sister, who Noonan used to have a relationship with. Let's talk about Gary Oldman. He's the Armando Sante of this movie. He's so over, yeah, he's so over the top, but he's so fun to watch. The hand scene? This is the comfort food element I'm talking about, where it's just so 
from a different time of yes. making movies where it's just like, oh, it's Jackie boy. He's Jackie. And he, this is his, this is Jackie's world we're living in. But the world's passing him by. Like, I just love how hammy it is. It, yeah. And normally I don't like hammy performances. I hated Kevin Spacey in every movie he was ever in because he's, oh. he's such a ham. But this is good ham. This is the good kind of ham. This, where... is, this is that honey smoked ham. Yeah. This is that fine spiral cut ham. It brought some life and humor to the melodrama. I got to say that. Yeah. I think that because a lot of the movie is built on the relationship between Sean Penn and Gary Oldman, and their acting styles are so diametrically opposed to each other, where Penn is super intense, very naturalistic, very minimalist, and Oldman is just like Camp King. Which he's gotten better at nowadays. He's better at nowadays. I thought they were a bad match. I thought whenever they were in a scene together, the scenes suffered. Like, how were they ever friends? They weren't very good together. I would rather have Oldman because Oldman's more fun and the movie really needs fun. But he's the one who winds up sticking out in the movie because the movie's more on Sean Penn's wavelength. Was anyone else thinking when watching Oldman in this, he could totally be the same character that he is in The Professional? It's just he became a cop. He's totally the same. It's like the same I performance, was about but he's true a cop romance. now. Yeah, true romance. <laughs> he oh, goes on to become a drug dealer. But he's still kind of wild in the professional too. I don't he know. Is, he's totally wild in the professional. That might be my all-time favorite Gary Oldman performance. Oh, it's great. So what great. is a better what is a better version of this character? Because we've seen this character a million times. Yeah, I, I guess it's like Sonny Corleone, like the out of yeah. control. Sure, the wild card. Lieutenant wild card in the gang who ultimately fucks up and, and gets his no, shit taken care of. You yeah. know what movie I just watched that I actually think is a, a good comparison? Even The movies aren't that similar, but the characters are. Ronan. You guys seen Ronan, the John Frankenheimer action movie? I saw it at the theater. I remember at the time being disappointed. That's all I remember. <laughs> Sean Bean is in that movie. He's in like the first half of the movie playing a mercenary who doesn't know shit about being a mercenary. And he's up against Robert De Niro, who is playing a very minimalist character. And Sean Bean is all like sweating and catchphrases and all over the place. But they really work mm-hmm. because the movie doesn't want us to like Sean Bean. It doesn't yeah. want us to have any empathy for him. It wants him to be a buffoon. I don't think this movie wants Gary Oldman to be a complete buffoon. Yeah. It wants him to be like a, a tragic, tough guy. Well, and what it wants us to feel is the pain that Noonan feels when we realize that he is, in fact, an undercover cop. Right. Trying to work his way into this gang. But because this gang is composed of his friends and his acquaintances and his loves from when he was a child, it is tearing him apart to do that. Right. It wants us to feel the friendship that they once shared and how devastating it would be for Noonan to betray that friendship. Yeah. And it doesn't hit you very hard. It's pretty melodramatic, and you're kind of just like, whatever, man. These are the worst gangsters ever. They're pieces of shit. <laughs> They're also really bad at being gangsters. They are, I want to right? talk about this. <laughs> Frank is one of the worst mob bosses of all time. But I love that scene when they tried to shake the guy down in the bar, and they totally screw it up. That was yeah, great. Was really interesting. I'm sure that that happens more often than not with actual real gangsters, where... They think they can just walk in and completely decimate somebody and then they just totally screw it up and like, because it's all a show. It's all a show and they screwed up the show. So I really like that. I love seeing gangsters arguing about the performance they put on after (laughs) screwing it up. And that bar made an appearance in two of our movies, didn't it? I think it was also in Q&A. The same bar? That's the 
Was that the Old Town Bar? And also, I have to say the Queensboro Bridge, 59th Street Bridge, is in all three. I was thinking that that yeah. was Old Town, but I, I, I think it just looks really similar to Old Town, but it isn't oh, actually maybe. Old Town. But it's definitely okay. Old Town in um, Q&A. Um, but I think that that bar was probably like a Hell's Kitchen bar, or maybe it was a set. I don't know. Um, I don't know. But they seem to have filmed the whole movie like in actual Hell's Kitchen. There's a lot of shots on like 12th Avenue and like by the river, like the Intrepid. They were using that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A ton. That's right. Um, but I don't know exactly where it was. But yeah, I, I I did like that scene. There were a couple standout scenes in this movie in the traditional gangster way. What do you have in mind? I love the scene on the Intrepid with John C. Riley and. The, the other two guys showing up and beating the shit out of the mafia the bosses. The two thugs, yeah. Riley plays Stevie, another member of the gang. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, what else? The scene where they find Riley's body, I also liked a lot by the river. How goofy was that, though? <laughs> They're like, you come on down here, he's been killed. Why? They're pulling him out of the water the second they all get there. They haven't ID'd the body yet, so how do they even know? This is the stuff that I like in this movie, though. This is the fries that I'm just like, <laughs> this is so stupid, but I love this it. This is the mac and oh, cheese. it's Johnny's body. Oh, no, no, As he's Johnny. being pulled out. Yeah, it's, yeah. What? It's perfect. I love it. And then Robin Wright says, she's like, everywhere you go, somebody dies. Every time you turn around, and then he spins around three times. Look, no one died. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so this is what I that, like. That was it's the goofy. comfort food element. Um, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I prefer that over a conversation where I can't understand what just happened and what characters were being talked about. Like, I'd rather the ham than the vegetables. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, I got gotcha. you. I like that. I want to call out R.D. Call as Nichols. Frank's. Oh, yeah. He's cool. Consigliere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe my standout performance for an actor who is not nearly as big a name as the rest of the cast of this movie. I mean, great actor, working actor, been in a ton of great movies. He was he was solid in this film as the hyper effective and efficient right hand man. Yeah, he was. Even good. though his character felt weirdly out of place in this completely bumbling and dysfunctional gang. He True. did it again a few years later in Waterworld. Love his performance right. in Waterworld. Oh yeah, that's right. Just putting that out there. Yeah, he was great. Super intimidating when he executes the bar manager. I love that scene. Uh, even though it was so stupid, he just walks in and shoots him in the face. Like it's after ten leaves. Yeah. So as far as the plot goes, Nat, you already mentioned that Stevie John C. Riley gets into a fight with some Italians. Jackie and Noonan show up and, and beat them up, but this really causes a rift because the Italians are part of the Italian mob. It's headed by a mobster named Borelli that Frank is trying to do business with. So the Italians want Stevie dead. Frank yeah. kills him, and then that basically is the death sentence on the gang, even though it takes a little time because now Jackie wants revenge for Stevie's death and everything starts spiraling out of control and ultimately culminates in Frank having to kill his brother, Jackie in order to keep his business with the Italians alive, which Noonan witnesses. And that leads to him abandoning his call to law and order and instead going for good old-fashioned revenge in a slow-motion shootout in Frank's I've got to say, Oldman's death was mishandled pretty badly. I know it was supposed to be like he just shoots him down, but like we could have had some really good melodramatic ham acting in that scene. Some Black Forest ham? Yeah, just him being like, <laughs> you're my brother! Just go for it at that point. True, after the rest of it, sure. <laughs> yeah. That made sense. Uh, have him stab him in like a Game of Thrones fashion, like in uh, The Red Wedding, like all that. Like, come on. Just go for it at that point. So let me say what my standout scene was, because I think it exemplifies 
the film's strengths and its weaknesses. It's the meeting between Frank and the Italians. Oh, yeah. The Italians have called a meet, supposedly to sue for peace. Frank thinks he might be walking into a trap, so he gets his entire gang, including Jackie, including Noonan, to hole up near the restaurant where they're meeting with Uzis. Dude, in, in Soho. With a plan that they will bust in there. Yeah. If the meeting goes too long and they haven't gotten a call and try and rescue Frank, and if they can't rescue him, take out as many of the Italians as they can. And so we get this long sequence of the clock ticking and intercutting between the conversation and the conversation is super intense because we're learning that the Italians want Jackie killed and Frank is having to deal with that back into the warehouse where all the gang is waiting and the debates they're having about when they're supposed to go and what the signal is going to be. And then finally making the move just as the meeting wraps up and coming down the street in slow motion, right as Frank is leaving the restaurant, all this stuff in the moment worked. It's, it's, it's constructed correctly. It's, tense and thrilling and dramatic but the second i stepped away and started to think about the sequence it's goofy it doesn't it falls apart it doesn't work it's goofy it doesn't end in any kind of satisfying way mm-hmm. and the debate over what the signal is is so weird and moronic and doesn't build to anything it just is like a stalling exactly tactic. it's not necessary at all and yeah like you said it's just it's just goofy totally goofy yeah it really then undercuts the film it's the same scene in the departed which is the number one comparison to this movie i think huh. just like undercover cop yeah. oh yeah with the meeting with the chinese gangsters where matt damon's at the off center and he's texting with frank and leo's there and it's this it's a similar thing where like nothing actually happens at the end of it but it's executed so much better in that movie just because it makes a little more sense the 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 problem here is that oldman's motivation is stupid that he's just like impatient for the phone call. He's worried about his brother, I guess. Well, yeah. there wasn't supposed to be a phone call. He had it right that it was at two o'clock. If they haven't gotten a phone call, they go in. Right. That was the instruction. And Sean Penn tries to delay them because he doesn't want them to go in. Like that will give up his cover. <laughs> yeah. He can't go in there shooting Italians, but it feels weird. Yeah. And the only way good. they can sell it is that the rest of the gangsters are all idiots who didn't listen to the instructions. <laughs> so it's only strung out Jackie who has a good reason for not exactly remembering what the instructions were and Penn who matter and it, it just it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to call out that it's in, it's all of that is at Finelli Cafe in Soho which is now completely gentrified. Oh. It's like all like luxury stores and it was just so funny to see what it used to look like cuz I I used to work right there. In, in the movie, they kept on saying, oh, God, has changed so much. I'm thinking, man, if they could see it now. It's all. Yeah, exactly. It's a very anti-gentrification movie. It is. Yeah. Jackie's only is like, oh, they're coming into the neighborhood. They came. <laughs> Dude, I remember growing up in New York whenever I would shoot bottles on my roof. It was so much fun. But those Jeez. days are over now. <laughs> Just move out to Vermont. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Even Connecticut. So let's talk about the big shootout. Yeah. The big ending. Now, we watched Blue Steel pretty recently, another 1990 movie. Oh, yeah, Catherine now, Bigelow. I assume you got serious Blue Steel shades from this final shootout. Oh, yeah, very similar. God, I don't remember Blue Steel at all, but I remember liking it at the time. Yeah, just all every shot is slow-mo. Every shot is slow-mo. The closing shootout is just all long-lens, slow-motion gunplay. Squibs exploding. So, yeah, like so 80s blood pack exploding. Like, at the time, I thought it was like brilliant filmmaking, but watching it now, I'm like, oh, it's just slow-motion. Yeah. 
it's not that exciting. It's not even choreographed that amazingly. But at the time I had two, you know, two VCRs. So I, I recorded from one tape to the other and made a montage of movie clips that I loved. And that slow motion shootout was one of the movie clips in my montage of nice. favorite nice. movie. Nice. Yeah. The original YouTube clips, basically. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's cool. I like seeing it. I like seeing some cool slow-mo, especially with the intercutting with the parade. I wasn't sure what it was trying to say with all that, but maybe it was just a stylistic thing. And also showing why you didn't hear, like, people didn't come because they couldn't hear the bullets, maybe, because of the parade. And setting it at St. Patrick's Day has, you know, Irish points, I guess. Yeah, and the contrast of the happy versus the... It's, it's um, hard for me to articulate exactly why. I've been putting a lot of thought into it. This sequence doesn't work for me as well as the Blue Steel one does, even though they're very similar stylistically. Very, very similar. Both are well shot. Both make use of gore to good effect. I think that the problem here was this didn't feel like the culmination of Noonan's character. He spends most of the movie agonizing over the fact that he has to do this job because he doesn't want to hurt these people. And then his culmination is killing all the ones that are left alive. Yeah. So that didn't really feel like a payoff the way that Jamie Lee Curtis finally giving into her violent nature felt like a payoff at the end. So we don't really have a character dynamic to focus on. And then the choreography just wasn't that special. I think the mechanics yeah. of the shootout had to be more interesting. He just walks in the front door of the bar and shoots everyone. And then mm -hmm. they all come to him and he keeps shooting them. In Blue Steel, she's also being, she's being like chased, basically. It's her against the guy. Whereas this is a fucking execution. He just walks in knowing what's going to go down. And we also don't mm. know that much about most of the gang members. The only two that we really know anything about are Nichols, R.D. Call, and Frank, and yep. Harris. So there's a bunch of other dudes there who get blown away who were at, for instance, this scene at the Italian cafe, but we don't really know anything about them and we don't know how Noonan feels about killing them, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it's fucking cool. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Uh, let's also mention Robin Wright, just because she does such a good job with a pretty thankless role, I think, just being the sister of all the gang members. I don't know. I just thought she did a great job with it. She's amazing. She's so good at steeliness. Yeah. Yeah, she was good. I also wanted to call out the director of this movie. Phil Jeannot. Phil Jeannot. Who was really young. He was 29 when he made the movie. And he made this movie that I really love called Three O'Clock High. Oh, yeah. It's really good. It's an awesome kind of Scorsese ripoff, but in a high school. And <laughs> it's a funny, exciting, artistic movie that I loved. I was kind of surprised that he followed it up with this. This almost seemed like a, high, a murder for hire in a way. He also did all of U2's music videos. Yeah. That's cool. I think that a lot of the problems with the film probably come down to him, but even more so to Dennis McIntyre, who wrote the screenplay. And this is his only screenwriting credit. Huh. Yeah. I think the single biggest problem with the movie, I'm going to bust out a term from our old creative writing class in college, Nat, is the movie lacks profluence. Oh. Profluence Ooh. is the characteristic of a story that drives one scene to the next so that things progress in a way that gives the movie propulsion, gives the story mm -hmm. a sense of acceleration or at least a velocity. Yeah, It can be done really simply just with scenes setting up the scenes that follow so that you know where a character is going. And when they arrive there, the scene can continue. The first half of this movie really lacks that. Scenes just kind of happen. The characters don't progress in a way that feels like they're moving in any direction. We don't understand where the movie is building to. And I think the reason this is, is that we don't know that Noonan is a cop. 
because the movie wants to save that mm-hmm. as a little surprise for later on, these scenes, which should be about the tension of being an undercover cop, don't have anything going on. Right, it's just him talking. They're just sort yeah. of scenes about re- reconciling with old friends and lovers. Yeah, that's true. It's true. But yeah. you know what? It's just... It's pretty. It's pretty. <laughs> Sean <laughs> and... Gary, just going at it. All the Irish boys. I don't know. All those buddies. Yeah. (laughs) I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Using an undercover cop story to talk about the emotional toll of being an undercover cop versus like the suspense of being undercover cop is really interesting. It's a very different angle on that type of story. Right. That his big problem isn't that he might be found out. He tells them who he is at the end. Mm -hmm. It's that he has to look his best friend from childhood in the eye while he's stabbing him in the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so good. The movie abandons it by the end and doesn't have it in the beginning because we don't know that. So it only exists in the middle chunk of the movie. But when it exists, it's interesting. And by the same token, the whole disorganized crime element where this mob is pretty bad at being a gang is also interesting. Yeah. Not great for a very serious movie. It feels like maybe it should be more of a comedy or at least something a little bit more lighthearted. <laughs> but it's a different take on the material, which I appreciate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's get into it with the stats, man. Releases September 14th. I couldn't find any info on the budget, but this movie looks pretty expensive. I'm guessing at least $5 million. Yeah. It makes 300000 on its opening weekend. Oh, goes on to gross $1.9 million total. It came domestic. out like the same week as Goodfellas, right? It was like right next to Goodfellas. That's sort of its oh, downfall. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I imagine it was. Yeah. Um, so it kind of came and went. It just can't hold a candle. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of movies that have to do with crime. And in a very crowded genre, this movie is the also ran. Yeah, totally. And the reviews were so lukewarm. I think that didn't get the audience it needed out to the theaters. Why would you go see this if you saw Goodfellas the week before? You'd be crazy. Uh, And when you could see (laughs) King of New York the week afterwards. Let's talk about King of New York. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right, King of New York. Holy shit. I had actually seen this one before. This was the only one that was old to me. Is it watchable? Yeah. Is it kind of really stupid? Yeah. Is it got some really cool scenes? I think it does. And <laughs> it's a vibe. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. I basically thought of it as like, this isn't a movie. This is exactly. Really, this is like a really awesome photo shoot for Vanity Fair where it's like <laughs> gangster theme. We're all going to dress up like gangsters and we're going to put like mm-hmm. a barrel of cocaine over here. We're going to dress up like something. I don't know if they're gangsters. We're going to predict the Matrix yeah, a decade early. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's not trying to tell a story. It's just trying to sell this idea of like gangsters. This is a movie I adored when it came out. I loved it. It's a movie I told all my friends about. On their birthdays, I would buy them the VHS and say, "This you're going to love this movie. And I believed it until you guys made me rewatch it, that it was a good movie. And I posted, I posted on Facebook, you know, like, because, you know, I post every movie I, I watch that I was, you know, watching it and people commented under, oh, great movie, loved it, awesome. And I wrote, I hope this holds up. It does not. <laughs> what? I was dumb in 1990. No offense if you liked it, you guys. No, I mean, I... No, it's good. Take the gloves off. I was Oof. like, this is really dumb, but I also kind of enjoyed watching it. Like, like the same way you enjoy watching a music video from from back then, where you're just kind of like, oh, look at that. Interesting creative choice. Cool, cool, cool. I'm into it. Can I ask you guys, what order did you watch the movies in? This was second for me. Second for me, too. This was first for me. I watched this one first. I did this, then State of Grace, then Q&A. So I got smarter, progressively smarter. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, 
I I am startled. I'm I'm a I'm agog. I'm aghast. I cannot believe that you guys didn't like this movie. I sort of had the opposite reaction to you, Ian. I was pretty nervous to rewatch this movie. It's from what I might call my Boondock Saints era, <laughs> when I thought that was a really great movie. And I've come to terms with a lot of the movies. That's the worst. I liked back then not being good Doesn't movies. Doesn't that hurt your soul? You're like, oh, you hate your old self. <laughs> it's so embarrassing because yeah. you're like, oh, and I told people to watch that. Oh. So I was really worried to rewatch this because I thought I was going to have your turn. And I was so overjoyed to discover that I think this movie is phenomenal. You need to stop drinking. I think this movie is so good. <laughs> I think this is a great film with a capital J. Wow. Okay. Sorry, you made me spit on my computer. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it has, it's not, it's not a serious film. It's not a subtle film. It's not a somber Like film. Matt said, it's not a film. <laughs> it's not. It has incredible dialogue. A all-star cast, a look unlike anything else I've ever really seen. Really, does it, though? And <laughs> one of the most interesting takes on its material of anything in the genre. All right. In retrospect, it feels to me that Abel Ferreira was friends with, with uh, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken's coming to, the, to New York for the weekend. He's like, okay, I, I, I got a camera. Let's just shoot a few scenes. Okay, now, they shot these scenes. They only had three hours together, it turned out, because Walken has something else to do. <laughs> He leaves the city and then they're like, oh, we got to make a movie around these three scenes we shot. How do we do it? Is there a story? It doesn't matter. That's what the movie feels like to me now. It doesn't matter. This is not a, a film about narrative. No, there's no lead character. There's no lead character in this movie. It's about no one. Well, that's what that's the magazine element of it, where it's like, yes, let's get some cool, sexy people dressed up with some Uzis and we'll just do some cool ass <laughs> and mountains cool of cocaine, just like all the cocaine you've ever and seen. And what I loved about the movie at the time, I guess, is the melodrama of the end. You know, the, 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 the shooting in the rain. That was pretty cool. And all just all the shootouts. Holy that Chinatown shootout. Goofiest thing in all the land. It's so it's, a, it's like Big Trouble in Little China, but that was a comedy. I think the movie's got some really good... I'm a connoisseur of, like, the Sopranos executions and, like, the Goodfellas and Godfather. Like, you know there's a pantheon of, like, the greatest gangster hits in movies. And I think this one has some good ones. I think the Caruso killing is awesome. <gasps> That's a good-ass kill. I think the the opening couple kills are pretty good. Like that's oh, yeah. the level I was coming in at this movie. I was like, it's for the that bullet was holes. Some sick bullet holes, yo. Like, there were two <laughs> scenes. There were two scenes I remembered before rewatching it, and they were, you know, the the, the tampons for the bullet holes. Right. And then there was the 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 newlywed cop hitting the fire hydrant. Those were the two things I remembered. Oh, and yeah. I loved I loved that at the time because it was so dramatic and yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> here's here's how I would contextualize this film. If State of Grace wants to be unto a documentary. It is these lives picked right out of the street that have been fleshed out in their full drama. This wants to be opera. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about human characters and a dramatically satisfying narrative. It is about image and emotion and movement and music. And all that shit worked for me in this movie. It just, it just, everything fell into place. It clicked so well I I loved it. I don't know what else to say. It's just I, I loved it. I was so disappointed. I, from like the very first scene when Frank White, played by Christopher Walken, is praying in his jail cell and then he walks to the corridors and every time we cut to him, he's walking a little bit more upright. He's got a little bit more of a strut in his step and then he walks out of the prison and there's a fucking limousine waiting for him. And I loved it. Yeah, it's, it's style. It felt like a movie. And inside the limousine are two beautiful women. Yeah. 
his relationship to them totally unclear? Are they does <laughs> ben, they you work should, for you him? Should watch, you should watch some like mid '90s hip hop videos. You would love them. <laughs> it's exactly the same shit. Where it's like, oh, look at these hot girls with Uzis. It's crazy. <laughs> but they're not just hot girls with Uzis. They are just hot girls they, with Uzis. Come on. They are. They are like enigmas. They're mysteries. They are <laughs> archetypes. This movie is the origin story of a Batman villain in a world without Batman. <laughs> I, I guess so. I'm so happy both of my children turned me down to rewatch this. I'm like, it was great. <laughs> it's a great movie, but my wife came down and watched it with me. Wow. Oh, she's like, that was bad. And 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 the the overt sexuality, like, here's a close up shot of a, a boob being rubbed on a subway for no reason. <laughs> it was just goofy. Let's go into the plot a little bit. I mean, it's it's just basically. He comes back, he kills a bunch of people, the cops are assholes, and then they all kill each other. That's the plot. Yeah, he gets out of prison, he's taken over the gangs, he has this crazy idea that he's going to use crime to help the community. (laughs) Again, it's like a music video plot. It's like, yo, I'm going to use crime to help the community, dog. Like, it's so... I'm just a (laughs) businessman. The cops, (laughs) they, they think that prison can't hold him, they want to put him in the ground. So they go extrajudicial and they try and kill him. Frank opens out a contract on the cops and it all ends in a shootout in Times Square. Yeah. I think the whole budget went to Times Square. And and to lighting gels. Listen, Just gels all the I don't way down. Wanna, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't like this movie or like I, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Like I appreciate it for what it is. At the end of the day, it's like I'll, I'll when I own my bar, I'll have it on the TV. And with the sound off. That's the level of movie I'm talking about here. It's like, oh, yo, this is the scene where Caruso gets whacked. Fuck yes. But then you'll miss all the incredible dialogue. Just like the one-liners that are so good. They're fine. I mean, it's it's all posturing. It's all just posturing. And it's posturing is fun. And it's interesting to watch. But like... It doesn't have any substance for me. Like, I'm just kind of like, oh, that was cool. That That was badass. But... I need a little bit more there. Like, I need there to be the moment of, like, why? Why are we acting like this? I, I, I can't yeah. just do the music video level. It's the aria level, not the music video. It's yeah. opera, damn it. Dude, it's 1990. There's no opera anymore. It's music videos now. <laughs> That's true. That's what we're, Ian, what were you going to say? No, but do you agree? Like, Walken kind of disappears. Like, he's at the beginning. He's at the end. In the middle, a little bit. Is he I gotta it? say, I wasn't that into the walk-in. I was way more into other characters in this movie than walk-in. But he was the was king of New York. I know. He's just kind of doing... People love walk-in, and I was yeah. like, this is not the walk-in performance that I'm going to stand by. I'm sorry, this I'm just outspoken because this is... I'm participating in this podcast as an apology <laughs> to all the people I recommended this movie to. I'm <laughs> sorry. I, I really liked walk-in in this movie. I like that at the start of this movie, he's almost self-conscious. The way he plays that scene where he reunites with the gang. Yeah. It's like he's shy. That was a nice scene. Yeah. But as the film goes on, he slowly grows into this extremely sinister dude to the point when he finally shows up in Victor Argo's apartment, Bishop's apartment at the end. He's scary. First good scene of the movie. And as the end of the movie, last 10 minutes is when the movie got decent. I liked, I liked the idea that this whole time he's been looking super cool and he's been surrounded by his posse and he's been killing people, but in reality, he never had a chance. I kind of liked that idea that he's way in over his head and we didn't even realize it until it's too late for everyone involved. But I just think the movie's a little too obsessed with its own style and image to really make that a meaningful plot. I don't know if your image is going to be this unique. I'm into it. 
I mean, it is it is what it is. Let's it's... talk about some of the other people in this movie. We got Lawrence Fishburne as Jimmy. Playing the Gary Oldman character from State of Grace. Very much so, except this movie's kind of all Gary Oldman characters. That's true. Good point. <laughs> We've got Giancarlo Esposito as Lance. All costumes and attitude, no dialogue. Yeah, he didn't have yeah. much to do. He, he had nothing to do in it. We got yeah. Steve Buscemi as a character named Test Tube. Again, it's like, it's cool on paper, but like, I... Steve Buscemi, let's go. Where did he go? He disappeared. Yeah, I think it was before he was big. The, yeah. the Michael Cimino film, Year of the Dragon? Yes. We got Joey Chin from Year of the Dragon, an underrated film, a film I highly recommend. Yep. I don't remember there's, it. There's a lot of great people. Then, um, But I'm really into the Caruso. We've got Caruso, Snipes, and Victor Argo as a trio of cops. By the way, do you think Victor Argo was like the reference for Homer Simpson? That man has the upper <laughs> lip of Homer Simpson. Oh, probably. Yeah, I can see that. In the younger version. He was a very likable character. Yeah. Oh, so likable. I liked, I liked the cop stuff way more than the gangster stuff in this movie. Those cops were yeah. great compared to the gangsters. I liked the wedding. I liked Caruso freaking out. He's so good at playing a man who is one bad night away from turning into a homicidal maniac. Yeah. yeah. He seems more dangerous than the gangsters. Totally. Yeah. Which is, I think, to the movie's point. Yeah. No, it's mm-hmm. all about the cops being just as big pieces of shit as the uh, gangsters, in a way. There's one other character we need to talk about, which is Paul Calderon as Joey. Who was <laughs> awful in this film, and but playing the same character. He was the rat again. <laughs> he's, not, he's not a rat. He's like a fixer. He's like the connector. He knows everybody. He can get anybody to anybody. He does sell them out to the cops at the end. But until that point, he's like in with every gang. Yeah. I don't know. I was so into him. He's got the long hair and he's got the mole on his face. He looks fucking he, fantastic. He looks movie. it, but I found him completely unconvincing. He totally stuck out to me. That's so funny. You liked him. Mm. I thought he was like the breakout for me in this movie. I, I kind of liked everybody in this movie. I swear, I liked Esposito. Even though all he does is walk around in a duster and then in a suit, it was enough for me. Because he looked <laughs> for awesome. Me, in this movie, the breakouts are Caruso <laughs> and Fishburne. Fishburne's amazing in the really ridiculous things that he has to do he's very ridiculous yeah but i kind of loved it like i loved it when it was just like when he walks in that chicken shop and he's just such an asshole he's like one of the biggest assholes i've ever seen in a movie those scenes are awesome it's just like it's all image and it just didn't come together for me in a in a meaningful way but i was it was like going to a museum and seeing some paintings and you're like oh wesley snipes oh and we didn't talk about him yeah yeah wesley snipes he's there (laughs) They have that scene when he gets shot at the end and then uh, Caruso's like all sad. It's like there was no buildup to that relationship and all of a sudden we're supposed to feel horrible of this big dramatic moment in the rain where Snipes is dying and, and Lawrence Fishburne's is on the ground like, ha, ha, ha. We're supposed to feel about it the way we feel at the end of Carmen. When <laughs> Carmen is said in his arms, we don't really care. Like we don't, we don't know that character well. The entire... The entire opera's been in a foreign language, but it's <laughs> it's so dramatic and it's so big yes. and it's so visually arresting. And that's what I liked and at Lawrence the time. Fishburne staggering around and laughing and coughing up blood. We're supposed to feel about it in the way that we feel about Enrique Iglesias getting killed in the I Can Hear Be Your Hero Baby music video. <laughs> when he threw the money he... up in the air and there's the gangster <laughs> that kills him. It's really... Really powerful Spoiler. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> check it out. I'm sorry, man. The opera comparisons, I can't get with that. It's music video all the way. Have you ever seen Belly, the, the gangster movie? I have no. Okay. I've seen the cover. It's, it's directed by Hype Williams, who's the number one rap music video uh, director of the time. And this movie is so similar to Belly. It's all style and not a lot of the substance. The thing that distinguishes this from a music video, 
an opera from music video. And why I like the opera comparison more is there's a lot of silence in this movie too. There's a lot of quiet. There's a lot of people staring out at the city in contemplation that feel like the interludes between the drama. It's not all like bang, bang, bang in your face. A lot of it is just sort of think it was to extend the running time so they could get into the theaters. Cause I have like the whole beginning, I felt like, okay, he's supposed to like, they're the wealthy gangsters. How many close-ups of champagne glasses do they have to show? I'm gonna, Ben, I'm gonna just, send you uh, some music videos where it's just Jay-Z sitting in a fucking throne with a cigar. <laughs> That's what it was. All right, Ian, <laughs> you mentioned Abel Ferreira, the director of this film. Are you a fan of his work other than this? Uh, at the time, I was because of this, and then I liked his movie, uh, the the Body Snatchers remake that he made at the time. Probably not good either. And uh, there was some other movies. Bad I saw, Lieutenant I is pretty awesome. Bad oh yeah, Bad Lieutenant is good. Yeah, his big breakout is a movie called Miss Forty Five, which is like mm-hmm. a revenge, super thriller. low budget. Yeah, I love that movie the way I love this movie. His stuff's really inspired, I think, by uh, Giallo films, the Italian mm-hmm. horror genre like Suspiria, Suspiria is uh, great, Tenebre, and the Mario Bava films. It's, again, very uh, colorful, a lot of use of lighting gels and mm-hmm. extreme chiaroscuro lighting with deep, deep shadows. And no story. And, and not a lot of story. <laughs> um, and really violent, over-the-top uh, um, um, over violence. I love those movies, and this mm-hmm. felt like the only time an American movie has ever tried anything like that. Okay, I respect you at the end of the day because of that explanation. <laughs> Matt and I are on also, the same page on this. <laughs> into a hotel room where a drug deal is going on and shouts, room service, motherfucker, and then wastes the guy. It's awesome. That's why I liked it in 1990. <laughs> there you go. What about this movie's stats? What do we got? Open September 22nd, budget of $5 million, makes 412000 on the opening weekend, just inching over State of Grace, Goes on to gross 2.4 million domestic. Another failure. But killed it home video, right? Home video, definitely. Yeah. This movie, the reason I think we'd all seen this one before and that, and you and I had not seen the other two is because this movie has a reputation. Yeah. It is a yeah. cult film. It does. People like Quentin Tarantino are big proponents of this film. Abel Ferreira has a reputation. Movies like Bad Lieutenant get weird quasi-sequels from Werner Herzog. Yeah. His work had an influence beyond the scope of their commercial success and i will say this movie feels way more modern than the other two like it's definitely paving the way for the style <laughs> in the 90s whereas q a and state of grace feel a little more 80s-esque to god me. i don't even know if i would say that this feels modern this just yeah, feels I can't like say its that own either. thing i guess it's just it's more just like the way it's shot or the way that it's vibing in a different way than anything you'd see in the 80s I have to give it credit because it is of the three and I had seen them all back in the day. It is of the three, the only one I really remembered and truly loved at the time. So clearly there's something there that I don't appreciate now. <laughs> yeah. I also watched this with my partner and she was also nonplussed, disappointed, confused, upset <laughs> by the explicit sexual yeah. violence and by the violence generally. And that can really bring down a viewing experience. Um, it can really change the way you see a movie she was kind enough to not like clue me into that until we got to the end. And I turned to her. I'm like, wasn't that great? And she's like, yeah, what? No, what? I was embarrassed sitting next to my wife. I was like, Oh my God. I was embarrassed of who I was before I met her. I'm like, Oh, she would have hated me back then. Good thing. We didn't meet then. No. Okay. Oh my God. Let's talk nineties themes. So one of the ideas of the podcast, Ian, is that we are trying to create a thesis for what it was to be a movie in 1990. We're looking for 
narrative trends, tropes, and thematic content that repeats mm. itself over and over in these films. And so even just looking on the micro at these three films on their own, um, I don't know if anything jumped out to you, but also looking at the macro and all the movies we covered, Nat, was there anything that you wanted to bring up here? I guess it's more the same. Just the crime element, obviously, is huge. I was going to save that have, one. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I was going to not acknowledge it. I was going to pretend that we didn't talk about that one. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, it's... it's I, I don't have anything concrete, but there's... I just wanted to say there's definitely a, a style and a vibe in all three of these movies that's kind of lost today. Like, it feels like it's harkening back to, like, an older aesthetic in an older era that just doesn't exist anymore are you, are you putting that in the same in the same sphere as something like misery and the other films that we've made this argument for i guess so but even beyond that it's like that old new york like that yeah. doesn't exist anymore all three mm-hmm. of these took place in new york and like they're shooting the real new york and it just they really capture the city in a way that like i don't see in movies today anymore and i know that's not a specific 1990 thing but i just wanted to call it out because i don't have any actual thesis statements I don't know. New York might be a theme. It's true. I feel like 1990 yeah. is coming at this time where, as a nation, we are concerned about the fate of our greatest city, quote unquote. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is true. And yeah, especially King of New York and um, State of Grace are all about the changing city in a way. Mm-hmm. Both of them have somebody coming back to their old stomping grounds and seeing what has changed over the years. And totally, it's just funny that it's changed so much more yeah. now than it had changed already. And like the fact that you don't get movies like this anymore is kind of telling because what <laughs> would the movie even be? It would be like New York is Disneyland. Yeah. Now. It's yeah. not, it's just not that at all anymore. No. It's so weird. I mean, I guess you get some great New York TV shows now, but they're all about millennial angst. Right. Exactly. exactly. They're yeah, all about girls. The, the ennui of living in the perfect city. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. all there is. I'll also say this. I can't remember if State of Grace had this or not, but just like the the hidden corridors of power, those rooms filled with powerful guys in suits mm-hmm. all discussing. Oh, Q&A. Yeah. yeah, Q&A had it. King of New York has it at like the yep. Plaza Hotel shenanigans. State of Grace was more like mafia bosses talking. What about other films we've covered where that you could you could apply that? I suppose to some degree, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, you've got your conspiracy <laughs> yeah. of this of Shredder's ninjas. Blue Steel had the had the yuppie power guy. Like I, different. Well, but... you know what? That ties actually pretty nicely into a theme I wanted to talk about, which we started to touch on during House Party last week: the death of Reaganism and the disillusionment with the "morning in America" sensibility mm. and ideology that. I think we've seen a lot of movies that do not see the social and economic state of America as utopian, the way that it was sort of sold to them in the eighties, right? Eighties, you know, these huge commercial boom, you've got the rekindling of conservatism and of, of, of family values. And we're told that it's making the world better, but a lot of the movies we've covered have been about how things either on the surface or behind the scenes are nastier and dirtier, more corrupt and more broken than they've ever been. Totally. Totally. And that's that ties in with crime. Yeah. Too. We also see a lot of films dealing with racial tension. And that fits in the cultural clash theme that we started to look at a little bit. It isn't as common in sort of the more lowest common denominator blockbuster films that we've looked at. Because they don't really want to deal with that as much. 
But obviously, we're only a couple years away from the Rodney King riots. The 90s are a mm-hmm. pretty explosive time for racial tension in the United States. And O.J. Simpson. All of these yeah. movies touch on that to some degree in very different ways. Very, very different ways. But let's just give props to King of New York for being pretty colorblind casting. It's just like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true that's just true. like here's a black gang with a white leader and a black cop with an irish last name it takes place in harlem but they only say that like one time it's not a big deal that it takes place in harlem <laughs> yeah that's yeah. true that's that actually yeah that, i was thinking that too when watching it this time okay should we rank these sure ian uh worst to best what do you think oh god um i'm gonna say god story-wise i gotta say king of new york is the king worst of new york three yeah, uh, State of Grace in the middle, and Q&A the best. Q&A the best. Nah. I'm going to go Q&A the worst. <laughs> uh, ah. Then <laughs> it's a pretty close tie between State of Grace and King of New York. I might revise what I said earlier and give the edge to King of New York just because I would yes. probably. But that's not, a, that's not a win for you, Ben. <laughs> that, my opinion is not a win. Give it to me it's on not the a guest. Win. Okay? <laughs> so let's just get that out of the hair, out of the air. <laughs> It's this close, and we're not just playing by the ranks. Uh, no, but it's it's just um, I think King of New York's like power is stronger than State of Grace's power. If you had flipped those, we we would have absolutely zero agreement on these lists because I'm putting State of Grace at the bottom, Q and A in the middle, and way out on top, King of New York. Fair enough. Fair enough. Are there any? I, I was wondering, is 1990 one of the best? crime movie years uh i was looking at like all the different years and there's a couple other good ones but 1990 is very strong it's just got a lot to offer on across the whole spectrum the real question is you know is something like the godfather so good that even if there were no other crime films that year does that still become the best year for crime no movies? i think it has to have a good spread <laughs> it has to have okay. a, you got to have like a lot of options and are we excluding like film noir because that would be another contender. There might be a year back in the 40s where you've got a bunch of good noir films coming out. I think out. that's a little different, honestly. Okay. Like, when okay. I think okay. crime movies, it's it's sort of... You, I think a movie where it, a crime happens? You know it when you see it. No, exactly. Movie, like I wouldn't, <laughs> A movie where there's a criminal? I would, I would barely even call something like Big Lebowski a crime movie, even though, it for in by definition, it is. It's about criminals and crime. But you know it when you see it. You know what a crime movie is. <laughs> And I think the 1990s probably a pretty damn good year. There's a good spread. Ian, you have any closing thoughts? Uh, no, I was just thinking, I mean, you just got me thinking now in the early 90s, there were like a bunch of like things to do in Denver when you're dead and all those kind of Tarantino-esque crime films. But parting thoughts, thank you guys. That's all. Hey, thank you for coming. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Yeah, love, no, it was fun. Very much so. About, about movies with someone who knows their movies. I want to talk to you someday about a movie I love. I don't know what, but another <laughs> movie, something I like. We'll, we'll send you the list. You could, you could, Pick one out. <laughs> or add Avalon to your list. Oh my God. <laughs> or maybe it doesn't hold up. <laughs> I know, that's what I was saying. Are there any that you know are good still? You gotta pre-screen it and, and find out. A uh, quick few plugs I want to make. First, thank you to Andy Gagnon for our music. Second, make sure to follow us on social media. We are at BTTM Pod on Twitter and also on Instagram. Oh yes, uh, at BTTM Pod on Instagram. Excellent. Yeah. All right, Nat, take us out. So, for Back to the Movies... This has been Ian, Nat, and I'm Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. 